Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. Hey, y'all. Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Flitch.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today's guest has uh, been described by a number of uh, well-known faces and names to this podcast as a comedy legend, Jonathan Ross, uh, a horror icon, Frightfest Sam and Jones, and uh, my favourite and indeed an accolade he's proud of himself, broadcaster Matthew Sweet referred to him as the Truffaut of Smut. Welcome to the Britflix podcast, David McGillifrey. How are you? Well, hello, Stuart. I'm Marvy, and uh, it's lovely to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. Now, we've come together to talk about your... Well, we're going to do five great British X-rated movies, but before that, the reason why we were prompted to have this conversation in the first place is that you've just published your memoirs, Little Did You Know, The Confessions of David McGillifrey. Did you not? I, I did, uh, and you can tell there's a but coming up, but it depends when this uh, podcast goes out. But in fact, it's uh, the book is only available as uh, a pre-order. It's not in the shops until the 1st of August. Ah, OK, OK. Well, that's worth me knowing. As I've got myself a pre... I've got myself a pre... Um, a pre-copy, so I wasn't sure where we were with that. Um, so, um, you've been writing... You've been writing your diary since you were 12, which is obviously a great source of information for writing a memoir. So given you've been doing that and you and you were, and obviously it's a memoir, so you won't mind me saying, obviously born in 1947. Um, why now then, having been keeping a diary for so long, did you choose to pull it all together into a memoir? I have indeed been keeping a diary and I've never missed a day since 1960. And uh, in my study here, these diaries are all lined up. And in fact, I used them earlier today to uh, read the notes for my five films, which we'll be discussing later. Yeah. I never considered writing an autobiography until the turn of the 21st century when uh, I was going a bit mad, really, and I thought there was a story 
about the five years around the turn of the century that was worth telling. And then while I was about it, I decided to tell my entire life story. So <laughs> I hope it's a very long book and I hope that uh, readers won't be bored by all that. Now, given the subject we're going to be talking about and you uh, and, and, and for the for the horror fans who, who tune into Britflix, they might know your work best for your screenplays you've done with Pete Walker. Uh, which obviously now are sort of have, have achieved a, a, a very much a high cult status in in British uh, in British horror and exploitation, um, and it's it's sort of interesting to see in the in the in the way that you've mapped mapped out. I say mapped out. This is what I'm picking out highlights as I see it mapped out from your book. You know, you write your second screenplay in 1969, and that fell into the hands of Michael Billington, to which you say that kind of twist of fate was. Uh, was was why you're writing this memoir today so that's quite amazing in itself like in terms of sliding doors and then then you say you you in seven two years later in 71 you go and you pay to watch um cool it carol and that became another momentous moment in your life now are you writing that how much of that is you saying that in the 21st century or how much was that you making that point to your diary that you knew these were momentous occasions in terms of whatever your life was going to turn out to be well, of course, I had no idea while I was living these experiences what was momentous. And mm. it's only in retrospect, uh, as you say, while I was writing the book, that uh, everything became clearer. Uh, I think probably very early on in the first chapter, I, see it's, I, I say that it's terribly easy to look back on your life and, and realise uh, what were the most important things at the time. No, I, I had absolutely no idea what meeting Pete Walker would lead to. Mm. Now, uh, one of my neighbours, funny enough, is, uh, is Josh Sacco, who does Cigarette Burns. And uh, he came on the podcast back in 2015 when there was the Pete Walker retrospective at the Barbican. Um, now, again, it's, sort of, it's only with the benefit of hindsight now um but how, how and and it's interesting and i've not i've not read enough yet in terms of i've not got enough from like the way the way you give the detail of the period when you're writing these films but certainly in that first chapter in the in, in that you call like the overview as it were uh where you sort of take us through like a pot a very fast potted history of your life um that the sort of idea is you were kind of knocking these films out but they were, there wasn't as much importance placed on them as there maybe is is today. So what do you think, what changed in terms of people's view of the work you did with Pete Walker that sort of elevated them from these things that you, I think using your own words, sort of that you were kind of knocking out, that then have a gravity now that they didn't have originally? Well, the films were just a pulp and uh, they were made at a time in the 1970s when it was possible to move from one project to the next. And sometimes I was writing three films at a time and I wasn't give, giving any thought whatever to the future. Those were the days when a film was uh, released and then when it had finished its release, it disappeared. There, mm. was no, there was no home entertainment. So I assumed, as everyone else did, that these films had no shelf life at all. But then what happens is that another generation comes along and it has a different view of things. 
Um, the films, in all honesty, were not popular. They weren't well reviewed. But mm. the next next generation decided that there was more in these films than had been assumed at the time, and this came as an enormous surprise to me. Do, do, do you do you agree with the way that people describe your films now, or do you just see okay? Well, I accept you saying that, but I never meant that in the first place. Uh, well, you uh, took the words out of my mouth. I accept it. If you say it's true, then that's fine. But of, of course, I don't think anyone who was working in exploitation in the 1960s and 70s knew um, that we were revealing things about ourselves um, that are now apparent to an, another generation. We were also reflecting the times we lived in. They were very difficult in the 1970s, not quite as difficult as they are now. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, we had a, a, a lot of... Uh, uh, upsets and uh, strikes and at one point a, a three-day week and that's when I was writing these films the ones for Pete Walker I think I, I will now yes accept that, that, that they do uh, reflect those times yes and and um, I, I love your description of, of, of saying like describing the collaboration as to why maybe it worked that, that Peter was the conservative who really did think that Britain was going to the dogs and you were the one that were writing, sort of almost pulling him in the other direction because you were the one who had the problem with authority. So that was kind of the sort of magic that was making these movies. That's true, yes. The, um, you must be on a page where I quote uh, um, somebody else who you might like to have on your programme called John Towelson, I think that's how he pronounces his name. Hmm. Um, but he was writing about Pete Walker's films uh in a way that really resonated with me. You know, he, he really did put those films into perspective. Mm. And now, one of the things I mentioned to you in, in the email when we, when we were arranging this podcast is um, the, the notion of a memoir like this becoming also a social history of the UK from obviously one person's point of view, um, akin to, and I don't know if you've read it, the Mim Scala Diary of a Teddy Boy, which sort of takes you on the journey through a very similar period as yourself. Um, from a first-generation Italian living in Fulham to, you know, I think he, he ended up doing, like, the his story takes him on the, you know, the, Mar the, the, the hashish things in northern Africa, and then he ends up being some sort of record-label mogul um, after all that. But it's, and while, while at the same time going to gambling dens in Mayfair where Salvador Dal is holding court, you know. <laughs> so, so to someone like me, sort of, who, who I was only born in 71, so it's a world I can only imagine through the pages of the way people like him and yourself sort of describe what was going on. This kind of because because I, I mean, there's bits in it that you mentioned which I just think they just resonate so loudly as to how we've changed as a country. So there's um, you mentioned at one point um, hair down to your collar was frowned upon. Um, the notion of in Palmer's Green, if you ran for a bus, there'd be the right squad out because you'd be causing such a fuss, and it's. It's it's kind of a, an observation, I suppose, of a of a much quainter Britain that doesn't exist anymore. Which, obviously, in light of um, current Brexit nonsense, um, is a you know where, the, where if you listen to some of the people that really want Brexit, seem to believe that 1956, 57, or somewhere like there was this idyllic halcyon period of Britain. But as you point out, you had police giving out the birch and uh, and things like that. Um, 
was that something that was you, that you were beginning as obviously you're reviewing your own diaries? Are you beginning to see that progress and you know lack of it, as for a better word, from from the time you were growing up? Well, as the French say, plus ça change. Uh, we are, of course, much more broad-minded and generally liberal today. And it's it's very clear from my diaries and what I wrote in the in, in, later in the book that 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 is the case. Mm. However, uh, some things don't change. And I'm afraid in this year, 2019, it's still as obvious as it was then that we're still as xenophobic uh, and racist uh, almost as we were uh, when I was growing up in the 1960s. And, and this is an appalling situation. Mm. And, and for yourself, um, someone growing up in a time where homosexuality was, was illegal until 67, um, it was, it was reading it with 2019 eyes. It's sad, it's almost sad to read like your memory of you were going to be heterosexual. Uh, you were, you know, and, and you used the expression, I think you said something like, um, that the homosexuals were Nancy boys, so you couldn't be one of them. So what, as, and obviously you, 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 you rose above that in the end and, and, and came out as homosexual, but, how 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 awful is, is that conflict in your life? Because obviously, a twenty-one-year-old a, a homosexual guy now has not had to think about the law. You know, thinks could could obviously find themselves a partner and get married. You you were living through a time where, you know, hormones are raging, but the world that, that you live in isn't saying maybe where your hormones want to go is not acceptable. Of course, it's one of the things that has changed uh, for the better. Mm. Uh, when, when I was growing up, uh, not only were homosexuals, homo not only was homosexuality illegal, but homosexuals were completely invisible. There was no representation in the media. And homosexuals literally were underground. They met in, in basements and they were never, hardly ever seen. So the contrast between then and now is almost unbelievable. As uh, I, I say, I, I had no conception of gay marriage ever being passed in this country. And I don't think I was the only one. Mm. When, that, when that happened, I really couldn't believe it. I, I just found it astonishing. And let's not forget that <laughs> same-sex marriage was passed by a conservative government. Mind-blowing, Mind isn't it? It is. So this is what delights me about life still at the age of 71, is that it's still full of surprises. No, indeed, indeed. Um, so with... With your own with your own work, and I think you describe it as there was a, a you were in the eye of the storm of a sort of soft core porn sex film industry. That I guess what would you say sixty nine to seventy six? That's fair enough. And and in a sense that that was where maybe even though it was like like you say Adventures of a Taxi Driver and the like, which is you know fairly inoffensive even by standards that you could have walked across the channel and got. Um, but but what do you think those kind of films did in terms of liber of helping to liberal liberalise the UK as we know it today? Do you think there is the building blocks there? Well, I suppose it could that could be said. Yes, it was all part 
of the of the liberation that we enjoy today. Um, looking back on these films, of course, and I I, uh, I wrote a book about this called Doing Rude Things. It's just impossible to imagine that these films had any purpose, whatever. They were um, reviled by the critics at the time, loved by the public, but they were of no apparent interest, whatever. And again, it wasn't until much later when, you know, I, I tend to say that it's because of me, but they were suddenly uh, available again on, on video and they started turning up on TV and they assumed a new importance because then they were part of social history and people were fascinated by the attitudes of the 70s, which, of course, are now quite appalling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and and also this this just before we go into and it's a bit of a segue into our five great British X-rated films is the story you tell of from 1966 where you're watching some eight millimeter porno films and you review it a very tongue you you describe it as tongue in cheek I think and um, and it's after publication more than one person warns you that you could get prosecuted just for the act of viewing the material you that you wrote about. People have no idea what uh, life was like in the UK in the 1960s. And it is absolutely true that not only was uh, it illegal to produce pornography, but it was illegal to watch it. And I didn't know this. Hmm. Uh, so I saw a porn film projected onto a, a sheet on somebody's wall. And I thought, oh, this is great fun. And I wrote an article in a magazine. Mm. And then I was told you shouldn't have done that because if anyone reads this, you could be prosecuted. And that was news to me. But that was the age we were living in. Um, uh, people don't know they're born today. Young people are very, very lucky on the whole. No, I mean that was that was one of the the big messages from your book is that yeah, I mean even me like born in seventy one doesn't know he's born. So uh, you know my nephew, you know sixteen years of age next week, he's got no idea of how how liberalised Britain is and how we don't really want to go backwards. We only want to go forwards. Well, some people <laughs> want to go backwards, Stuart, and they voted in the referendum. No, they did, sadly, they did. Well, look, let's let's spend a bit of time and let's move on to um, five... In fact, no, let me, one more question I wanted to ask you is, um, having trawled through your diaries and sort of relived them a bit, I guess, what for you is a kind of favourite memory you unearthed that maybe even one that you'd kind of just, your subconscious had kind of forgot about? Was, was there a sort of favourite that you unearthed through writing this memoir? Well, uh, what happens is that we forget virtually everything. And it's only when you write a diary that you realise that you had another life you never knew you lived. So when I was going through the diaries in order to write this book, everything was, almost everything was a surprise. You know, I'd forgotten people I met. I'd forgotten films I'd seen. I'm not going to be able to tell you much about these films we're going to discuss in a minute. But the uh, 
the main thrill of my life was the Edinburgh Festival Fringe in 1976 when we had the most incredible success with a play I wrote. And those two weeks in Edinburgh in the blazing hot summer of 1976 will stay with me forever. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's, you, you comment a lot on the kind of reviews your, your films were getting, which obviously weren't positive. In, 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 in a lot of senses, um, but this this Edinburgh Fringe review was was sort of glowing in the extreme. Why do you think your writing for stage was received so much more than your writing for screen? Well, I, I've always been a comedy writer. It's probably the only real thing I can do, mm. and I got sidetracked into horror. And uh, the, the horror films were, were not popular in mm. their day. I mean, now, if you look at IMDb, IMDb, they're still not particularly popular with a lot of people. I don't mm. think some people get them at all. Yeah. Um, but generally, I have to say, I've been quite successful as a comedy writer, and I'm still doing it. To this day, I shall be writing some more buggery jokes for Julian Clary as soon as I hang up the phone. <laughs> and I was, I was, I was amazed to find that you are the origin of the tenor under the tire gag. Ah, well, yes, that was a, a, another huge thrill when I first saw it on TV. This yeah. is a sketch I wrote for Dave Allen. It must have taken all of five minutes to write. And uh, lo and behold, it, it still turns up on telly to this day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ali Phillips chose it as one of her favourite sketches on a programme on gold only a couple of months ago. So, gosh, I was just thrilled. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the, endu the endurance of the kind of, uh, of the universality of that gag, really, isn't it? I mean, it's never going to date is it, in any way. No, I'm delighted uh, that uh, because it's a silent comedy, um, uh, it, it will tend to go on and on. Let's face it, we're still watching silent comedies with Laurel and Hardy and Buster Keaton today. Uh, you know, they were made 80 years ago. They're still funny. And did you, I mean, you, you, said, you describe it as being you looked out the top window of a bus or you were staring out the window of a bus and that's where the lightning bolt, the idea hit you. Did you, did you see a tenor floating down the road? <laughs> no, I, I always, uh, not always, but quite often I get ideas when I'm travelling on public transport. Mm. And in this, on this particular occasion, I was on the top deck of a bus it stopped, I looked at the cars parked in the road, and then it just came to me. What mm. would happen if there were a £10 note under one of those wheels? You couldn't get it out. What, so then, by the end of the journey, I'd worked out a three-minute sketch. Fantastic. And there, and there a comedy career was born, I guess, yeah? Yes, it's, it's on YouTube. You can watch it right now. I will put a link in the show notes for people listening to this podcast. Okay. Uh, um, so, let's do five great British X-rated movies. Uh, I'll just give a rundown of the form for anyone that's not listened to this podcast before, who's come to us new. Um, it's uh, David selected five films. Um, we're going to spend five minutes on each one. And when uh, the, um, the dulcet tones of um, Edgar Burton Band kick in... 
that will signify five minutes are up and we'll move on to the next film. We're going to do them in in date, in reverse date order, which, as I said at the beginning, um, David kindly prepared them for me in that way. So that means I've got them in that order too. And uh, we're going to have a conversation starting with 1957's Night of the Demon, a.k.a. Curse of the Demon when you're in America. What is it about this film about an American professor arriving in London to prove that paranormal doesn't exist? Well, I would have seen it on TV at some point, probably in the 70s. I was too young in 1957 to see it at the cinema, but I was fascinated, as you may know, by by horror films while I was growing up. And I would cut all the ads out of the newspapers and I would paste them into a scrapbook. Um, uh, we're going to come back to this in a moment. But one of those films would have been Night of the Demon. And when I saw it, you know, decades later, I thought, well, this is surprisingly good. Um, it's still, uh, I think to this day, quite creepy. There's some big names behind it. And uh, although it was shot in Britain, it was largely uh, an American production directed and written by Americans. Mm. But it's it's got something. It bears very little in common with the original uh, story by M.R. James. I was a big fan of his as well, and round about that time I would have been watching adaptations of M.R. James' stories on TV. He appealed to my sense of the macabre. There's one very grisly fil um, story of his called Lost Hearts, mm. you, may, you may know. But this one, Casting the Runes, is probably his best-known story, and it was very well uh, shot by Jacques Tourneur. Yeah, and, it, and it's, it's, it's a film, it's a brilliant film that's sort of made more infamous by executive producer Hal Chester's decision, or maybe insistence, of showing a demon in the final moments, or not showing the demon, and he went with show it, and it was obviously special effects at that point weren't up to the standards of today, so it's almost like a kind of, the film has this brilliant tension, all this kind of scariness, and then for some people seeing it now, that... They, they, they kind of refer to that as like being its bum note, but I mean, I, I can live with it. Well, it's, I think, one of, one of the film's high spots. As I say, it's not in the original story at all. Mm. But, but that, that chase through the forest and the demonic smoke, I think it's actually, it's not a bad effect mm. for 1957. And of course, it's now, I mean, it's, it's taken on a whole lease of life, hasn't it? I mean, Kate Bush sings about it in one of her songs. Uh, you know, it's in the trees. Um, I like uh, I, I like most of the film. What is particularly interesting for me, I hope I've got time to tell you this. No, no, we've still got a couple of minutes. Oh, how splendid. Well, you may remember there's, a, there's an extraordinary sequence of a, a seance. Yes. With, with some remarkable old character actors in it. Um, uh, singing Cherry Ripe and all this sort of nonsense. And then uh, everything suddenly turns sinister when the medium, played by Reginald Beckwith, actually speaks with a dead man's voice. And when I saw the film again on TV in 2010, I realised that that was in Schizo, my last film for Pete Walker. We have exactly the same setup. Pete used to nick stuff from other films a lot. 
and I never realised at the time. And here's something I didn't write this myself. That was that was uh, his idea. Mm. And here was another idea that he'd obviously uh, stolen from a film he saw when he was much younger. Fascinating. And and in that in that scene, it's it's a very kind of camp German guy, isn't it? The the guy leading the the, the seance, as it were. If I'm right. That's right. I mean, it's, it's uh, the, the film does have a very camp undertone. I mean, all the people in that scene I've just described, including, you know, a uh, gay actor, Reginald Beckwith, are all very, very camp indeed. It's hugely enjoyable, but not very common for that period. No, no. It's a, and it's, it's sort of a great tonal shift because it's kind of where you're never you're not quite sure what to believe or to believe. And then suddenly... It's like all bets are off, and then and then it's the classic throw everything throw everything to the wall. Let's run. Let's deny it's ever happened, which is always always good in horror. Yes, I like that. I like trying to surprise people and wrong foot people. And you know, maybe I was getting the inspiration from films like this, and particularly the early Hammer psychological horrors with titles like Nightmare and Paranoiac. Well, no, and, and obviously in later years you can see its influence if you see something like Drag Me to Hell or more recently It Follows, you know, which are essentially the same same rules. Yes. There's Edgar Broughton. So let's move on to your next choice, which, if I've read your book correctly, is the first ex-certificate film you ever saw. Uh, 1961's Gorgo. Do you want to tell us about that experience well, really, Stuart, this is just like your your podcast is just like Desert Island Discs, <laughs> isn't it? It's an adaptation of that. In which of course people... it is. Oh, I'm glad you admit it. Uh, people uh, have to do things like choosing records or films, but really they're just talking about their own lives. Hmm. And uh, as you say, Gorgo was very important uh, to me because it was the first X film. I ever saw. And uh, because I keep diaries, I can tell you the exact date I saw it, uh, 2nd of December 1961. And here is my entry uh, for that day. Saw my first Cinema X film, Bill Travers and William Sylvester in Gorgo, and, because of course there were always double bills in those days, Terror in the Haunted House. At Ritz Harringay with Mum, yes, uh, she was leading me astray. And then I say, shockingly sinful, but I had to see it. Um, so, yes, I was 14 years old. And at that time, you had to be 16 to see an ex-certificate film. But all my mates at school were doing it. And this is the film I really wanted to see. I was fascinated by monsters and particularly interested in the poster for this film. Uh, it's headed like nothing you've ever seen before. Mm -hmm. And although Gorgo was obviously based on Godzilla, I had no memory of that film because that was too early. I was so influenced by the film and the poster that uh, I edited the school magazine um, at that time and I put my version of Gorgo on the front cover and uh, that magazine was the reason I was expelled from school but that's another story is that Dave is that Dave you got that, that was my magazine called Dave yes the <laughs> first time I I got into big trouble 
Um, I can't remember a thing about this film. I remember being more frightened in the foyer of the cinema because I thought I would be found out and, and would have to leave. I remember that, but I don't remember the film itself. It doesn't tend to turn up much anymore, so I've never seen it again. But reading the reviews, apparently it's not bad of its type. Um, it was again done by interesting people, Eugène Lurier and the cameraman was Freddie Young. Um, and uh, of course, it premiered at the London Pavilion, which means a lot to me because my films, House of Whipcord and Frightmare, premiered there. No, it's, it's, it's fascinating to see how much the cycle of filmmaking never really changes. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of cynicism knocking about about the various NATO type films, you know, Sharknado, whatever, whatever, other kind of big spiders and all kinds of stuff. And that kind of sensationalism has been fueling films since gone World War Two forever, hasn't it? I mean, Gorgo is a UK island knockoff of Godzilla um, and, and nothing else, really, in a sense. I mean, I've not seen it and I want to see it now. You know, Eugene had, Eugene had done The Beast... <laughs> The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms eight years earlier, The Colossus of New York and The Giant Behemoth. So it was almost like if you can make it sound large and foreboding, you're almost there. Well, my feeling is that this is his best uh, monster film. I've seen the others you mentioned. Mm. Uh, I think it was called Behemoth the Sea Monster in this country, and I saw that again very recently okay. just because he directed it. It's not very good. I mean, the monster looks like an inflatable toy, in all <laughs> honesty. I mean, Gorgo would have been, in Godzilla tradition, a, a man in a suit, I presume, but reading the reviews now, it seems as though the effects are not bad for their time. I would now, um, I'd love to see it again. No, no, I mean, it's certainly, if only for, for me, like obviously Britflix being a, a, a sort of podcast and a website that focuses on British films, it's sort of when you, when you feel like you've missed one, it's sort of it, to get even just the cultural context of it as much as anything else, to see what the ambition was to making a film set around the time. Um, is always as exciting to me as, you know, whether or not it's objectively a good film or not. Right then, that's our five minutes up, so let's start them again, and we're going to jump ten years to my year of birth, 71, oh. for um, a film written by the late, great Brian Clemens, who's I've had both his sons on the podcast in the past. Um, oh, yes, and uh, Blind Terror, or a.k.a. See No Evil, starring Mia Farrow, um, now, I'm guessing you saw this when it was released as an X-film. I did. Um, uh, we're flashing through my uh, career here, but by this time, uh, in 1971, I was the assistant editor of the British Film Institute's monthly film bulletin. And uh, it's been said um, on Wikipedia that... Uh, I was um, the first of their writers to give more attention to commercial cinema. Um, prior to that, uh, the BFI had only been interested in Hungarian masterpieces and other films with what, what, we, what we called writing on the bottom. But I, 
I was given a lot of the soft porn, of course, because nobody else would do it. But when I spotted an exploitation thriller like Blind Terror, I um, grabbed it straight away. And I like the credentials of this because, of course, I loved Brian Clemens' work on television. Mm. Um, and it wasn't a disappointment at all. I gave Blind Terror a great review mm. in the monthly film bulletin, and m my editor was just shocked, you know, because normally we didn't give that amount of space to a film like this. It's, it's, uh, it's simply a film in which uh, Mia Farrow, who is playing a blind woman, uh, comes home and doesn't realise, because she's blind, that her aunt and uncle and a couple of other people as well, I believe, have all been murdered by a madman. The tension is just terrific. Uh, it's directed by Richard Fleischer, and he really builds the suspense magnificently. I thought it was a great film, and I'm very pleased that it's still around to this day. You can still see it on telly. And this is one I think does stand up very well. No, this is this is this is the exact reason why, from a very selfish point of view, I do this podcast is the sense of obviously I can't be an all CNI on film, nobody can. So it's always fantastic to come across a title that I wasn't aware of, um, that I can uh, I can now go and investigate. Um because that period, that kind of, it is, there is a bit of, as much as there was the, the a hurricane of softcore porn, there also was a bit of a storm knocking about of, of sort of British genre films as well, that didn't, you know, that were, uh, that were sort of commercially minded, but not always, I guess, absolutely commercially successful. But they have a life now because they seem really interesting, even just compared to the kind of box standard fare that gets churned out these days. Yeah, it's very much so. So at this time, 1971, uh, Hammer was still going. So you still had a regular Hammer film every few months. There were a lot of thrillers like Blind Terror, um, which was fine for me because that was my genre. You know, that was the film I really wanted to write, if the truth be known. Uh, I didn't know at that time that I was due to write one in only about 18 months. Um but uh, no, it's a, it's a very well, well put together thriller. I think um, I can't really, I haven't got anything against it in any way. No, no, well, but I was interested, with you saying you're right for the bulletin and you were the one that was sort of watching the softcore porn, porn films and the, and the genre films, is that because the bulletin literally was a public service to catalogue all films? Absolutely. It was their remit to review every film that was released to cinemas in Britain. And it would give wow. a, a synopsis and uh, almost complete credits at that time. So um, it's now been incorporated, as you may know, into a bigger magazine called Sight and Sound. Of course, yeah. And uh, that was because that's where you tell, you tell the story of how you ingratiated yourself, I think, with I think it's with these guys. With your ability to get all the credit information and stuff for films that they couldn't get their hands on. That's right. I loved uh, credits. I would always stay to the end of the cast list, and I was the only boy of my age who did that. So doing a job like this for 18 months before I got fired, I got fired from every job I ever had. Doing a job like this was just right up my street, you know, because I could uh, go into the project. <laughs> 
Go on, finish your thought. Sorry, it's no, it's no, not mastermind. <laughs> All right, <laughs> I've started, so I'll finish. Um, I could go into the projection box after seeing the film and then write down all the credits and then take them back to the monthly film bulletin. They were very impressed by my skills. See, you know, again, um, if, if we think of like your, how old have you been then in 71? So you're 20, 23, 23, 24. Mm. And if you fast forward to being 23 in 2019, you just put IMDb up and you've got everything you need. Yes, it's, it's insane, isn't it? The way information, the, the access to information has changed as much as anything else. Yes, of course. That, that, that sort of information just wasn't available to film fans. Mm. And I guess as well, because of like, again, the way you were talking earlier about we never knew these films would have a life because they just were at the cinema and then there was no home entertainment life for them. Um, there wasn't value in that information, whereas now, obviously... Um, we can access stuff through all kinds of ways and therefore there is value in being able to find out who is involved in what because as IMDb has a habit of doing if ever you get yourself locked into a into a, into a rabbit hole you go down a rabbit hole is you can find one film with one name and then you find that there's this jigsaw of a career that might find yourself I don't know Puppet Master 3 and it might end up with a BAFTA winning or an Oscar winning film later down the line and things like that this is the kind of stuff we love and <laughs> the lovely thing about uh, social media today is that film fans can come together and share this information in a way that just wasn't possible when I was young. All we had was film societies and nothing else. Mm. You see, I mean, I, I, um, and I, the, later up, like my sort of formative years, 18 to sort of 30 odd or whatever, prior to sort of the internet's burgeoning, but obviously I'd straddle the period before. Books by, say, like Fab Press or by Head Press and, and the likes of them, they became like the, the kind of proto-internet for me because they were cataloguing information that wasn't readily available in mainstream books. Well, many people younger than me have told me about this, about how they grew up with collections of books like that in their homes. Mm. And they drooled over these books because there was nowhere else they could get that kind of information. I'm glad you mentioned Fab Press because Harvey is my publisher. Yes, indeed. And I, I had um, a recent Five Great British Horror Films. I had Jack Sargent on who wrote the book. Um, oh, Death Tripping, the one about the cinema of transgression in New York, which to my 21-year-old eyes in the early 90s reading that, I was like, I have no idea from my North Manchester suburban house that this could even exist. <laughs> and that's, you know, you, and it's that, that, sometimes in a way, it's a bit like when you finally see the Mona Lisa, the way that things are written about, you kind of go, I preferred the imagined version. Um, uh, oh, so many people have told me that as well. <laughs> I'm I'm looking at my copy of Death Tripping now. It's signed by oh. Sergeant, and of course, because of the way we live today, he's my Facebook friend. <laughs> you, that was how I, I was kind of in awe because I only recently Facebook friend him, and it was that kind of. I said, "You won't believe," because I've I said to him, "There's three books. There's Death Tripping. There's Head Press's Killing for Culture, and yes. there's Caroline Glover's Men, um, Women, and Chainsaws, which were all like around the early '90s." And they just changed my view of film because <laughs> mm. I didn't know that world existed. But anyway, I am, I am delaying on the fourth choice, 
which yes. is 1973's Wicker Man. Well, probably everybody you've had on has chosen this film. It's been a popular uh, choice. Yes, I can imagine. The only reason I'm including it is because of uh, the way things were in the early 70s. Probably everybody knows that The Wicker Man was not liked by its distributor, British Lion, mm. who cut it and put it out on a double bill, a sensational double bill, of course, because it was The Wicker Man plus Don't Look Now. Amazing, amazing. But uh, because they had no faith in it, um, uh, The Wicker Man was never shown to the press. I was still working for the bulletin at that time, just as a contributor. Yeah. And I was sent to a preview theatre in Wardour Street to see The Wicker Man, and there were only three people there. This was its first screening. Gower Town. Really? Say that, say say that again. Seriously, there was three people. Yes, the, uh, nobody else saw the film. Fucking hell. So it was just me and a couple of trade paper mates, and we knew nothing about this film at all. It had had no publicity. Yeah. But I liked the idea that, you know, it's uh, written by Anthony Schaefer. Yeah, mm, yeah. Great cast. Mm. Uh, don't have to tell you the stars. Uh, we watched it, and... Probably everybody knows the ending now. But when the lights came up, I remember looking at my mate Tim next to me. He was working for another trade paper. And we said, what? We couldn't believe that ending. And we were saying things like, nobody's going to watch this film. Um, and of course, it went out and it was almost completely ignored. Again, it had to wait until the time was right for it to be declared quite rightfully a masterpiece. And it's been part of our lives now for, well, I don't know, what, 30, 40 years in all these different versions, you know. Hardly a year goes by without another version of The Wicker Man. I don't know where we are with them now. It's still a masterpiece. The ending, I think, I said somewhere that it's one of, one of the most wonderful endings in the history of horror. Um, it's got flaws, obviously. Um, but I'm so proud of the fact that the first review of The Wicker Man was by David McGillivray who gave it a rave review in the monthly film bulletin. And he said, it's an encouraging achievement for those who had begun to despair of British cinema. So, David, tell me then, when you were talking to your trade pals when that film finished, what was it about the ending then for you in 73 that made you think, what the fuck? <laughs> because you simply couldn't end a film with the death of the hero wow and somebody oh, i've gone and spoiled it now but um somebody will say oh no there was this other film in which the hero or heroine died but honestly i cannot think of any other film prior to The Wicker Man which took that risk and it was so unexpected I mean you know obviously right until the f the flames rise up you still think that somehow Edward Woodward is going to escape yeah 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 
And that shock value was just, I, 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 mean, I, I still find it hard to express. You've, you've, lit, you've blown my mind now. I didn't realise culturally it was a, it was a dead duck before, <laughs> before it became a masterpiece. That is, that's great art. So it's great. That's, that's how great art works, I suppose, isn't it? Nobody, nobody knows, nobody knows it's coming. Nobody wants it. And then they begin to reassess it and then they go, hold on a minute. This is cleverer than we thought. <laughs> There's, yes, there's hope for us all. There's always the chance of rediscovery. Rob, Robin Hardy did a, uh, a pop-up cinema in Walthamstow near where I live, and he talked about how that, that horrific ending in the deep south of America was celebrated as a, as a beautiful martyr's film. <laughs> you know, the idea that he didn't denounce God was a triumph. Yes. Oh, goodness. Well, I, I can't believe that, but I think in, in years to come, the, the, the Wicker Man is probably going to uh, go down in the history as the first challenge. So again, sorry, the first challenge to Christianity. No, I, 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 uh, yeah, you, you, you. Because I, I, I didn't see it. When did I? I'm trying to think where I saw it first time. I saw it in the 90s sometimes, so. It's obviously it's already established itself as a as a cornerstone of British horror at that point, and I'm just playing catch up. But ah. you've you've oh man, it's so this is why I like doing this podcast because to find out that the first screenings of Wicker Man was to three people is it's true, and it was only eighty six minutes long, and we knew it had been cut because the the cast went up, and there were these characters who hadn't been in the film. And it wasn't until much later that uh, an 102-minute version surfaced. Yeah, I've got I've got that director's cut now, but I I don't know. I I think I prefer the um, the shorter cut. Um, I, I have to say, the new material doesn't add anything, and I can see why British Lion cut it. In all honesty, mm. there's a long prologue you don't need. I think there's one extra song. Mm, that's I, right. Yeah, yeah. I still don't. I still don't like those songs. Um, I, I think I called them sub Lost Horizon at the time, but they're very popular now. <laughs> well, I mean, obviously, you, you you've seen this 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 whole life cycle of the film. So when um, is it the director? Of, no, of of um, Blood on Satan's Claw in two thousand coined the phrase folk horror. So it, it, it sort of lumping together Wicker Man, Blood on Satan's Claw, and Witchfinder General. Which they weren't a lump of films, were they? At the time, they were just three separate films. Yes. And then in two thousand, we have this phrase folk horror, and now folk horror is a very, you know, utilitarian term now in, in as a subgenre of horror. Absolutely, yes. There, there were earlier um, folk horror uh, mm. films with uh, titles like um, City of the Dead, I remember, mm. but no, it most certainly wasn't a thing. Right then, sir. So we've got your final choice of your five Great British X-rated films, and it's one that you've produced. Um, this is Abracadabra, which is, as, as I understand it, I mean, I've not seen it, so uh, it's a, is it a, a Super 8 short that was part of eight shorts under the banner of the erotic films of Peter de Roma? Well, I can uh, reveal more. I've, I've uh, broken the rules of this podcast because I'm, I, I have a feeling I was supposed to uh, choose my uh, favourite X films, and this is most certainly not 
one of my favorites. It was one of the most miserable experiences of my life. But, you know, it's it's good to share. And that's the only reason I wanted to talk about this. No, please do. Oh, well, thank you very much. Now, it brought together two um, semi-celebrities of the time. One was Nathan Schiff, who I'd interviewed in the 80s. He was basically an amateur who made films on Long Island with titles like The Long Island Cannibal Massacre, but he'd become a bit of a cult. And the other person was Peter DeRome, a pioneer erotic filmmaker. Also, I interviewed him, but then went on to make three films with him. Mm. What I thought was I was making these short films at the time. I'd done eight, which were part of uh, Worst Fears, which went out as a DVD. And then I started making more and I'd lost my mojo. I just couldn't do it anymore. Abracadabra was the worst. Um, I thought I could put Peter DeRome and Nathan Schiff together um, in a package, um, but Nathan, alas, uh, couldn't really direct. Sometimes we had to remind him to say things like action. Um, <laughs> and uh, the whole thing was shot in the depths of winter. I nearly killed Peter, who was by that time well over 80. Um, Surprisingly enough, though, and this is the crux of the story, there's no accounting for taste because I made this film about a magician who uh, advertises for a new assistant who ends up having a very sticky end. It wasn't the film I intended because so much material wasn't shot. But there were two versions of it. Nathan took his version away and I took mine to, to London. It was shot in New York. His version won an award <laughs> at an experimental film festival. My version eventually went out as an extra when the BFI put a lot of Peter DeRome shorts on DVD. So you can get this film now. You can see it should you mm. want. To. But, you know, I wouldn't. It's by no means my finest hour. And I still wake up screaming, remembering the awful experience. All I would add is that although Nathan, alas, wasn't that good in the director's chair, my cameraman, who is a genius, took over the direction and Sam Hardy ended up directing most of it. And uh, I'm uh, delighted to say that uh, I'm still working with him and uh, he may be working on my forthcoming feature film. Let's see what happens. So is this film is a... Is a is it a horror film with a kind of with a, a, a erotic erotica to it? Yes. What had happened is that I made a, a, a gay horror film in Morocco of all places called In the Place of the Dead in right. two in two thousand and seven. Right. And it was at the London Lesbian and Gay Film Festival. It, uh, subsequently won a couple of awards. So the curate, curator of what is now called, I think, Flair, said, can you can you make another gay horror film? And so that's why I put this project together. But alas, it didn't work. Oh, you can't win them all. No, OK, yeah, cause I, I, I've not come across this sort of, uh, the idea of mixing sort of the, the, uh, the porn and horror until there was a can a few years ago where it was, I think it's called L.A. Zombie. Ha-ha. <laughs> where the, yes. stra the strap line on the poster was, he's came out, he's come back from the dead to fuck you back to life or something like that. <laughs> 
Yes, I've seen that. Um, yeah, it's <laughs> it's another it's another sub genre now, which which never existed before. Mixing uh, gay and uh, or straight uh, erotica with horror, mm. and that's, there's quite a few of them. But I remember I used to write for a, uh, a weekly gay magazine in London called uh, QX, and uh, this was about ten years ago. And at that time, the genre was new, and I was able to get together about you know ten films that mixed sex and horror. There weren't that many. I can I can well imagine. I can well imagine. <laughs> right there we go. It's well timed. <laughs> Uh, well, look, that's uh, the end of your five Great British X certificates. Um, I'll just do a quick rundown of what your choices were, and um, we can uh, maybe just do a quick review of uh, whether there's any any underlying theme. So we've got 1957's Night of the Demon, 61's Gorgo, 71 Blind Terror, 73's Wicker Man, and 73 Abracadabra. Um I'm guessing with the fifth choice, we're we kind of outside of a, a, any kind of theme because <laughs> it's so, such a different movie compared to the other feature films. Um, but one question I wanted to ask, because I, I purposely said X certificate, because I feel like 18 classification doesn't have the kind of danger that X certificate has. And I know it's only language. Why do you think <laughs> that the X certificate was such a foreboding stamp on a film um the the bbfc um the british board of film censors as it was uh, hit on this letter x and it was um the uh, were a, a, a genius idea because x came well already uh, it meant the unknown but then it came came to mean everything forbidden exciting not for children, and it had this aura about it. And it's no uh, accident, I think, that the porn industry took on X, you know, the triple X rated <laughs> film, meaning something so dirty that you couldn't even imagine it. There is something about that X that we have lost now. Um, because now all we've got is numbers. And, you know, does anyone really know what any of these numbers mean? 18, 14, 12? No, they don't have that allure. And uh, the power of the X certificate in my youth was just enormous. Well, look, thank you for uh, giving us your time on the Britflix podcast. I should just remind people then that little did you know, the Confessions of David McGillifrey is out on Fab Press, you say, 1st of August, and people can pre-order that, um, and I'll put a link in the show notes as to where people can do that, yeah? Lovely, yes, from fabpress.com. Excellent. Well, look, thank you very much. You're very, you're very welcome. It's been a pleasure talking to you. The Britflix podcast is provided absolutely free. If you want to help me get the podcast out to more people, please take a moment to leave a review on iTunes. Or if you want to help me out directly, there's a link in the show notes to my Patreon page. All contributions are welcome. And the music is by Chris Reed of thecomposers.tv.
Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. 